Welcome to the A Plus EdTech Podcast. My name is Ashley McBride, and I'm an instructional technology facilitator in the state of North Carolina. In this episode, I sit down and interview Eric Francis. Eric is the ASCD author of the book, Now That's a Good Question. Mr. Francis was kind enough to take a moment with me after his presentation at the ASCD Empower 17 conference. Hey, thank you for joining me. Um, You wrote a book called Now That's a Good Question. If a teacher picks up your book, what are they going to find? What they're going to find first is they're going to find what are the eight different types of questions that promote cognitive rigor. And each chapter addresses those questions individually. They're going to find um, strategies and methodologies about how they can convert standards and statements and learning targets into good questions that will set the instructional focus and also serve as a summative assessment. But most importantly, what they're going to find is a way and a method that they can use questioning that will shift the balance between teacher instruction, student learning, to more student learning than teacher instruction. And they'll learn how to create a uh, classroom environment in which they can have a one-to-four ratio of direct instruction guided practice, for one, and four days of facilitation led by more student-centered learning, where they're going out and gathering the information in response to these questions and addressing and responding to them. What are some common mistakes that teachers make when they design questions for their classes? Well... When it comes to mistakes, it's not so much the errors as so much the focus of what you want the question to do. Yes or no questions are what I call cognition killers and conversation killers, because you can basically say yes, no, or I don't know. So you need to make it more open-ended. You need to make it in a way that students will be able to not only say yes or no, but also defend and explain why yes or no. Another thing that teachers make a mistake about is that they think the imperative statements, which is the directives, analyze, evaluate this, uh, create this, that's not a question. That is a direction. That's actually a directive. It's actually an objective. So that's the biggest mistake. I try to have teachers be more free and flexible because if they do something when it comes to a question that I have to say, well, that's not correct, they'll shut down. It's just like the kids. So if they come up with a question, I might work with them to say, you know, that's a good question. How can we make it better? Are you focusing, when you say, how do I do something? Are you focusing on the individual? Is there a better way to do it more collectively to say, how can you? And you're thinking about a collective you and a personal you. So really what I try to do is work with the teachers to come up with the question not only good in terms of a criteria, but good in terms of what it needs to do in a classroom. In your presentation, you made a comparison between teaching a kid to ride a bike and teaching in the classroom. Can you explain that comparison for the listeners? Sure. What I mean is sometimes we overteach and overexplain, and sometimes we talk and talk and talk, and if you talk for too long, the kids will just tune out. Think about when you ride a bike. It's just very, very direct. This is what you need to do. This is how you do it. You go into very specific, and then you have the kids actively go out and do it. They're going to fall, but you have to have them get up again. And you don't just say, get back up on that bike. You say, okay, what did you do wrong? What do you need to do next time? And that's what we need to teach our kids. Our kids need to learn how to fall in order to get up again. And when I say, I don't say failure, because failure is when you don't. Failure is when you don't do anything. You're either successful or unsuccessful. And if you're unsuccessful, you try and try again. And you either try it the way you've been doing it, the way you've been taught, or try it in a way that works for you or a different way. 
that's what we really need to teach kids. That's what I mean by teaching riding a bike. Don't over-explain it. Don't over-explain the history of the bike, why the bike is structured and organized the way it is. Just really just say, this is what you need to do. This is how you do it. Does everyone got it? Okay, good. Now for the next four days, I'm going to give you guys tasks and activities that will address this question and your action is going to be I'm going to address this question using the task and the activity of the item as your evidence support to your response. So communication is key for the kids, not the teacher. You talked about how we have lost our ability to be creative. Do you have any suggestions for teachers to help push their students to be more creative? Yeah, ask you a lot. That's what I mean by creative, outside-the-box thinking. Let the kids come up with their own ideas. So, for example, if I said that, um, what is transportation going to look like in the future? And the kids are going to say, the cars are going to fly. And that's when you go and you ask the kids, okay, now let's think logically about this. How will the cars fly? Um, what will need to change in order for people to learn how to drive flying cars? Um, there are people going to need a driver's license, a pilot license, or both. So you get them to think clearly. Let them use their imagination. And that's sometimes I think what happens in school is that as we go through school, we burden them so much, and over, not burden them, but overload them so much with factual information, with theory, with law, with concepts and procedures that the imagination gets taken away, the creativity gets taken away. And when I say creativity, I'm talking about creative thinking outside the box different and creative expression, the ability to do things in a creative manner. Uh, what is the difference between a correct answer and a right or wrong answer? A correct answer is irrefutable. Two plus two is always going to be four. It doesn't matter how you do it. Two plus two is going to be four. Math problems that you solve are always going to be correct or incorrect. The process is going to be right or wrong. So when I talk today about one-fourth divided by one-half equals one-half, and I visually represent it as a pie chart where I take one of the fours and divide it in half, yeah, visually it looks correct, but mathematically it's not. So how you do it, how you defend, explain, and justify and support your response is what I mean by right or wrong. So if I said to you, what is the color of the sky, you can tell me... Blue. Right. Well, most people will say that's correct. But what if I said pink? Doesn't sound right. <laughs> it doesn't sound correct, but it's right because I say it's pink at sunrise and sunset. Oh, okay. See what I mean? Or what if I said clear? There's actually really no color today. There's clouds outside, so it's gray. So you want the kids to be able to defend. It's not about answers anymore. It's about being able to explain and defend and justify and support your responses. Answers come free. We live in an information age. Every answer is on the Internet. We need to think, have these kids think critically about how and why is that the answer? What if there was another way to get the answer? And now that I have the answer, what can I do with it? So it's not so much even remembering and giving the answer. It's finding the answer determining the validity of the answer and then using that answer in their own unique way. Now, you also talked about the importance of personalizing questions. How can teachers personalize questions for their students? Simple. What do you want to learn? That's the simplest way. What do you want to learn about this? And I gave an example today when the kid says nothing. You say, that's not negotiable. If they say, why do I need to learn this? That's a perfect good question because now you're teaching them this is why I need to learn it and they can come up with a good argument as to why they need to learn it or not learn it, but they're still learning it. Also personalization was whenever you say you. There's a difference between saying how can numbers be multiplied to get a product and how can you multiply numbers? Because when I say you, it's about you personally. It's not about the concept procedure. It's about how you personally do it and how you can defend the way you did it. 
And you brought up a good point. Um, explain how you work with those students who are not motivated, who tell you, I don't know, I don't need to know this or I don't want to know this. I find a way and a reason for them to want to know this. I encourage them. Um, I share my passion for learning. I don't shove it down their throat. And I think that's sometimes what we teachers do is that we need to learn this. You need to learn this. It's important to learn in life. Okay. If the student goes, Why? That's the great question. Why? Why do I need to learn this? So really try to know your students. Really try to, I don't care if you like Transformers. Do math with Transformers. Go find the science of Transformers. You know, if, you're so, if you have this interest, figure out what you could do to tie what you're learning into what you're interested. Everything has a connection to real life. Everything has a connection to the real world. If it, if it wasn't, why would we be learning it? So you're asking your students to find what they like and then connect it to the standards themselves? No, it's more so I find what they like and then I'm kind of trying to figure out a way, hey, do you ever think about this? Like, for example, you know, I'm teaching about Teddy Roosevelt mm-hmm. and I tell them, hey, what if I told you he encountered a Sasquatch and that's why he uh, started the U.S. Forestry Division? The kids are like, what? That's ridiculous. You know, but it's, it's kind of that interesting coolness factor instead of me saying that this is the historical facts. And they go look on the internet and they find out that there's actually an incident and a story between Teddy Roosevelt and the Sasquatch. And that creative kid's going to go, well, that's really cool. But at the same time, what you're doing is you're teaching them how to work with um, what we now call alternative facts and fake news. And that's what our kids need to learn is that what is the validity of the information? And, you know, you can use mythology to teach fact. You can use uh, fake news alternative. You can give them wrong answers and say, why is that answer correct or incorrect? And they're still going to learn deeply. Now, I was very interested in when you talked about problems with using the depth of knowledge to assess student learning. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? That is a whole radio show in itself. We have been completely, completely misled and misinformed when it comes to depth of knowledge. That wheel was not designed by Norman Webb. It was, like I said, I heard it was designed by a third grade teacher in Florida, and it was incorporated by a Department of Education in their, in their Common Core trainings, and they made that poster. So when the other states said, what are the other states doing? They shared the poster. They put it online. PD people like me, teachers like you, we find that, like, oh, we think it's depth of knowledge. It's not. We've been completely misled, and we, it, everything has been misconstrued about it. So when you talk about depth of knowledge, you're talking not about cognition as much as you're talking about context. Blooms is the thinking. Blooms is also the kind of knowledge. Depth of knowledge is the context. So if I'm doing a DOK-1, I'm focused on the content itself, the stuff. DOK-2 is how can the content or the skills and stuff be used? DOK-3 is here's the scenario, situation, outcome, result, reason. Why is it valid or invalid? because of what we know about the skills and stuff, or what if this, or what if that. And a DOK-4 is more of an extended learning time to say, how can I move from the academic in the classroom into the real world to go and uh, you know make that connection? And that's what that DOK-4 is. The only assessments really to do with DOK-4 are the writing assessments, because in literature, DOK4 is, I read this text, I read this text, compare the two ways these texts express and share an idea, and that's a DOK4. So if you're doing an author study, how does the author express these ideas in different texts? DOK4. If you're reading in a genre, how is it expressing these different um, works of authors within a genre? DOK4. That's what we mean by DOK4. STEM projects are DOK4. Um, mathematical design and practices, real world application studies in math. That's a DOK-4. 
So a teacher wants to start using better questions. Where do they start and how do they keep from becoming overwhelmed? Because those are there's a lot of standards in each one of the grade levels and each one of the sections. Mm-hmm. So how do they prevent themselves from being overwhelmed? First, you need to look at the standard and break down to the individual objectives. If it's a compound sentence, you need to break it at the verb. So it might say recognize, blah, 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 and use, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's two different objectives. That's two different questions. Um, pull out the academic vocabulary and terminology. Um, if you make a lot of questions, that's great because it's almost like a stream of consciousness. It's almost brainstorming. The right questions is too talks about that. I can present a topic or present some sort of image or graphic and then come up with all these questions and then I'm just free associating with questions and then I pick which question is the essential question, which question is the important question, and how many are closed-ended, how many are open-ended, how can I turn a closed-end to an open-ended. Really, it's fun. I find it lesson planning fun. I found what I got burdened with was planning an activity, doing a task, making sure I have items. No, if I'm asking these questions, the activity becomes the student learning, the student addressing and responding to it. I don't have to turn my room into Ringling Brothers. I don't have to turn my room into Disneyland. I can give them a question that's so interesting that the experience of them addressing and responding to it and doing something personal with it, that's the activity. That's the rewarding thing about it. And in my classroom, it was fun, but I didn't have to do all these elaborate things. I just would ask them questions and go get me the information, report it back, present it in a creative way when I'm talking about personalization of projects. And it really, really was a great experience. And I think, you know, this is the way we really need to move when it comes to instruction. Stop telling the kids to do everything. Stop giving the kids these little items and tasks. That's a sample and start asking questions where they can go and express and share their ideas in their own unique way and insightfully. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Where can people find you? What's your Twitter handle, website? My Twitter handle is Maverick, M-A-V-E-R-I-K, no C's, M-A-V-E-R-I-K-C-R-Q. You can go to www.maverick, M-A-V-E-R-I-K, education.com. My book is available on the ASCD website, ASCD.org, or shop.ASCD.org. And uh, you can email me at maverick, M-A-V-E-R-I-K, at mavericeducation.com. Or uh, just do a Google search when it comes to Eric Francis or depth of knowledge or higher order thinking. And I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm getting associated with those areas. And that's very, very great because I was influenced by the greats like Dr. Marzano and Jay McTighe and Grant Wiggins and Carolyn Tomlinson and Nancy Fisher and Nancy Fry and Doug Fisher, excuse me. And, uh, you know, it's really great to see that, you know, my work is starting to get recognized. And I think that's actually a lot of the great thing about the ASD conference is that the people I wrote papers on are coming up to me going, hey, Eric, I love your work. And, and, you guys in the audience and seeing you, you know, laugh and smile and enjoy. And that's when people are going to say, so how'd it go? I'm going to go, they laughed. And they go, was that a good thing? <laughs> yeah, because I'm presenting my stuff. I'm very confident about my stuff. I'm, I'm, and I see that you're confident. But you had a good time doing it. And you learned. And, and why can't we make learning feel good? And that's really the great thing at the end. That's why I ask questions. It's not to put you on a spot and say, do you know this? It's like, do you ever think about this? Or what if I told you this? Or how does this happen? And the kids can go, I don't know. Well, I don't expect you to. I just asked you the question. Let's go find out. So it gets really exciting. So, so thank you very much for this opportunity, and thank you for attending this morning. Thank you again, and we'll put all your information in the show notes. Excellent. Right. Thanks. Thanks. I would like to thank Mr. Francis for taking the time to answer my questions during the conference. If you would like to follow Eric on Twitter or purchase his book, check out the show notes at aplusedtech.com.